Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It was a national vote, it was a national referendum, and Parliament has to respect that. The working class have spoke, and I'm one of them, and I'm with them. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. The time when people trust politicians, that's over. This is painful, and it will be for a long time. Can you give us a question? Can I'm you, not going to give you a can question. You stay, can you stay kind of You are fake news. Sir. This is a Westminster bubble thing. What? Hello, welcome to Politics at the Edge from the University of East Anglia. I'm Claire Preecy. And I said, Alan, let's do a podcast about Brexit first week of April because then we'll know what's happening with Brexit. Uh, uh, How wrong could you be? How how wrong could we be? Wrong both about Brexit happening and wrong about us knowing what was going on. I know, exactly. We have no idea what's going on. Are you surprised that we're not out yet? Uh, That's a good question. Uh, me of me of June 2016 is very surprised. Me of December 2018 is not surprised. No, you're, I'm now in a permanent state of not surprised, but permanent shock. Yeah, OK. Well, that's something we can talk about with our guests. It feels like we've been through this kind of extremely tumultuous time. And I want to kind of chat about what it all means and what it means and whether it's how it's changed our country and our politics. So we've got with us today uh, Professor Hussein Kasim. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, Dr. Pierre Boucan. Good morning. Hello and welcome back, Pierre. So, I mean, it's been a really crazy time. Are you shocked, surprised at how it's gone? Let's start with Pierre. Uh, I'm not surprised anymore or shocked anymore because it has been for, for a long time, actually, a very bumpy road with all, all sorts of setbacks, very, very little progress. So I, I would say I'm not shocked anymore, but uh, me of 2016, like Alan, would, would be probably... And, and Hussein, you've been talking to our, our European friends a lot. I mean, how are we viewed from from their perspective? Uh, not favourably. I mean, what's interesting for me is um, two things, I suppose. I mean, one is how um, solipsistic the debate in the UK has been. So there's been almost no recognition of the fact that um, the EU has interests, that individual EU member states have interests, and that they will act on those. And in fact, they have sort of power and influence also. There's been little regard for that um, all throughout the process. The the second thing is that um, what what I find quite interesting is that at the very start of the process, the the sort of principles that were enunciated, the sort of style of the EU's approach was was, um, sort of geared towards dealing with a really formidable machinery in London. And there was a tremendous respect for the way in which the UK um, handled its EU diplomacy for machinery, the quality of its decision making. And so a lot of the documents, a lot of the text, a lot of the speeches that were delivered, produced in Brussels were designed to sort of counter this um, this um, formidable machine. But actually, I think that as, as time has gone by, um, there's been a greater emphasis on their pedagogy because there's been such an evaporation of um, informed debate and, um, and, and, and detailed media, critical me- media coverage. So now um, there's just, um, well, surprise and astonishment, I think, over the other side of the channel and elsewhere in, in, um, in Europe about what's happened, about how this whole process has played out. How, how, how bad, it, I mean, sometimes the newspapers report that, you know, are we a bit of a laughing stock? And I never know if the newspapers are just saying that for their own internal political reasons. I mean, it, it, do you think there really has been a, a shift in the way in which Britain is perceived by other European countries, other countries in the world that might last long beyond whatever happens? Absolutely. I mean, I think there was a real sort of respect for the two-party system, the sort of clarity of the decision-making that produced, the clarity of policy. And um, now there's just um, 
astonishment at the sort of gridlock that seems to exist in our system. So a sort of sense that um, you know that, that majoritarian system, um, which you know, which isn't one that's that's um, that, that that is copied across the across the continent, at, at, at how that sort of ground to a halt, how it doesn't mm-hmm. it, it isn't an effective sort of decision making um, process or procedure. Um, I mean, what I'm always struck by is um, the tremendous respect for the UK. First of all, because a lot of a lot of people in the EU, a lot of people in, you know, work for the Commission, who work for the other institutions in in Brussels, have you know, have been educated in the UK. They've studied here at some point. They have children or, or relatives who study in the UK. They've lived in the UK. They know this country. They love this country. Um, they are really um, astounded by how things have um, how things have gone. Um, also, um, they, there's what I what I find is um, a similar level of respect for the negotiators, for the civil servants who um, who, who are in the room, who are doing the job, um, but not not the same degree of regard for the ministerial leadership. It must be said. You put that diplomatically. Interesting times. Well, I wanted to hear from voters first off. So um, I sent some of our journalism students out to Great Yarmouth, where 70% of those who took part in the referendum uh, chose to leave. And we wanted to ask them a bit about how they're feeling now, What's uh, with everything that's happened in the last two and a half years. Um, how do they feel about Brexit now? And have they changed their vote? I think that it has been um, not properly executed. But I do believe that, yes, we should actually, now we've made a decision to leave, we should actually go through with it, whether we got a good deal or whether we get a bad deal. Um, I would like us to leave on the date that our government agreed to leave. That's what we were promised and that's what should happen. I don't think people really understood what they were voting for. Um, They kind of thought, oh yeah, we'll be Great Britain. But we're not really a Great Britain, are we? I'm fed up with it, I really am. I think the general public's fed up with it. Now we've got an extension, haven't we? May and then June. If you can't make your mind up in two years... Another couple of months got made difference. So a lot of people saying there to us, you know, they've had to in a bit years. Why couldn't they deliver? Why couldn't Parliament deliver on that decision? Okay, it was a small margin, but they, but they, why can't they deliver on it? Well, um, first of all. Um, Often the analogy is drawn with a, d- a divorce, and of course, you know we all know that um, divorces don't just happen, you know, at the snap of a finger. They they they, they take a long time to, to negotiate. You know, it's a very deep, complex relationship that's been developed over over forty years. It's not just the politics; it's the economics. It's the sort of you know commercial enterprise side side of this with companies with you know supply chains across across the um, across the, the European Union. So it is it is complex, first of all. And one of the the problems is that this was not really explained in the referendum. Um, the, um, the you know the Leave side in particular told us at the time and, and subsequently how easy this was going to be, what a breeze it was going to be. Um, so they didn't really prepare public opinion for the difficulty for the years and years actually of negotiation that this would entail. And the th- thing is, you're not di- you're not negotiating with a um, um, you know with a, a sort of naive um, interlocutor. You're negotiating with somebody who is um, very aware of its own interests and which has been united since the very start. And um, you know, which has um, sort of demonstrated that um, that you know, it has a you know, very clear grip and grasp of the process in a way that, you know, quite frankly, our politicians in London um, have not had. To, to be fair, I would want to emphasize that it's a very complex process, and that not everything, not all of the issues that have come up were forecast from the from the very beginning. Actually, some people have heard this metaphor of it's very difficult to unscramble the eggs, and in some way. It is, and I think it, there was also a realization of how complex it is on, on all sides. Some issues that were not seen as major issues at the beginning, such as the Irish border, are now be, uh, becoming extremely important. So I think 
Should we, they have we known? We have to keep that in mind, to be completely fair. Should, it, should, should the politicians have known that it was going to be this difficult? They could have suspected. Uh, then it's one thing to kind of suspect. Even, even like, I, I can see that with so-called experts, people who teach European Union politics, right? They, would, they, they knew that the relationship was very deep and they have studied that for a long time. And yet, we and colleagues still discover new issues that they had not thought about. Uh, so I think uh, that says how, how complex it is. That said, if you uh, reckon with the complexity of it, even though you don't understand it fully, then it's, it's easier to understand that there are trade-offs, difficult decisions to be made, and so on and so forth. And mm -hmm. that was certainly not done. Uh, I think what Hussein, it's part of part what you said, Hussein, you said something about how uh, respect or attitude to the two-party system had kind of changed. Yeah. <coughs> so part of the problem lies there, doesn't it? I mean... There are many advantages to a two-party system, but that's a system that effectively says winner takes all for yes. a period of time. So once you win, you win the election, you're in power, you're in power for mm. five years. Yeah. That doesn't quite transfer yeah. to an issue where it isn't something you can revisit again easily in five years' time and where it isn't a clear decision mm. because it isn't, it isn't like, say, the AV referendum that was defeated, if that had been passed whenever it was 20... I forget when it was now. Alternative vote, yeah. so, so, so some kind of proportional representation. Yeah, so that referendum, yeah. you, that was a proposition about one specific thing, the mm -hmm. voting system, how it will work and how it would be done was clear. In the case of Brexit, because it is so many things that can be done in so many different kinds of ways and because it's something that can't really be gone back on easily, when you've got a 52-48 decision on that, then there has to be some process of compromise, which is very hard to do because for Remainers, compromising still means leaving, and for Leavers, compromising means not leaving as sharply or harshly as they want. Nevertheless, that would be what is demanded, some discussion as to, well, how's that going to happen? How can we do it in a way that generates consent beyond 48-52 that makes it work? And there was no interest or willingness to do that, really from any of the parties, to be honest, and no incentive for them to do so. In fact, the incentives are all the other way around, to, to mark the division even more clearly for the purposes of gaining electoral, political, tactical advantage. And that's still going on, I think, mm -hmm. that people are playing this for the positioning advantage rather than thinking, well, how can we actually reach some kind of compromised position? Yes, I think the problem with, with the majoritarian sort of mindset is is this sort of winner-takes-all um, sort of mentality. But um, I think, as Alan said um, earlier, that... Um, in the parliamentary system, what this means is you take office for five years. You don't make a decision that is effectively existential, that is um, enduring and, and permanent. And, and I think that um, this is it's sort of slightly confusing because as many people um, have reminded us, in a democracy we're continually debating and, and um, discussing issues and majorities are continually shifting. So um, there's a real mismatch between the, sort of the idea of a, of a final um, decision-making point um, and um, sort of discussion, continued deliberation, particularly when um, opinions are, are, are shifting. Um, I think that one thing we might all agree on um, um, is that referendums are a very bad idea for dealing with you know, complex, um, complex issues. I mean, one thing I would would say, um, picking up on sort of Pierre's point, and, and also something that, that Alan said earlier, is 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 the sort of complexity of all of this. Because I think that um, you know there are there's some sort of you know, rudimentary features of the EU and EU membership that that, that haven't really been. Um, discussed, thought through. I mean, I was, I was um, at the very, the very start of the, the program. You sort of played um, the, um, the the famous 
um, Gove quote about um, expertise. Well, I think a lot of uh, some expertise at the very beginning of this would have been very useful. Um, I'm thinking here about um, thinking through arguing about concepts such as sovereignty. Sovereignty means many different things. I don't don't recall a debate um, uh, during the referendum campaign or subsequently about what sovereignty means, um, whether it means a sort of legal title or um, or control or or weight in the world. I mean, they're, they're, they are three related but not identical concepts. The other aspect of this is trade. And, um, you know, it's quite terrifying to me, the idea that, you know, we read reports that um, only this week, you know, two, two years into this process and beyond the point where we went to leave, that MPs were asking to be informed and told about a customs union. I mean, really, they need, they, they, you know, one, one of the basic problems here is the sort of literacy about what a customs union is, what a, what a single market is. Because um, otherwise, um, people cannot effectively make up their minds in an informed way. I often and still defend politicians. I think politicians get treated quite badly often by, by press and public. They're not all venal, evil, greedy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there does seem to be a major problem in terms of, of members' willingness to find out or recognition they need to find out more about the complexity of issues. And part of the problem is that Brexit demands both an understanding of very high-level, grand strategy diplomatic politics that MPs seem not to be very interested in, and also a very detailed, nitty-gritty understanding of, you know, paragraph three, subsection two, C line, whatever. And and they don't seem to have been able to grasp that. And I don't know why that has happened, because I'm not I think that might be a new thing. I don't know. That's a big question, isn't it? Yeah. But it but even or not necessarily politicians having the expertise, but maybe in the past understanding that they could go to people to get that expertise and then make judgments about it. There seems to have been an unwillingness and uninterest in grappling with the complexity of it. Yes, and I think the Good Friday Agreement is an example of this. I mean, a 16-page text, which is you know, so important, so central to um, you know, the UK's relationship with its nearest neighbour and you know, um, um, you know, somebody who it's had a long and difficult history with. And, um, you know, it's, it's astounding to me that, um, that people can say they haven't, they've not read, you know, people in ministerial positions can say they haven't read it. Yeah, but I think this stems in part from the fact that basically the government wanted to sideline the parliament sideline anyone and conduct negotiations uh, on its own, interpreting the so-called will of the people. And the, so the problem is that it's this sheltered, like prevented this debate. And this debate is happening only now in parliament around the different motions that have been voted uh, in, in two rounds. And now we have people who have to grapple with the trade-offs, the complexities of a custom union, a single market, okay, white kind and so on, all, all sorts of shades of grey. You would have hoped that this would have happened earlier in the negotiation. So where this process of kind of collective learning, debating and formation of uh, a common position could have been done much earlier. I think one of the things that we, we noticed when we went to Great Yarmouth, that feeling that people were very frustrated in their elected representatives. Um, and I want to play you a clip of Charles Walker MP. He is um, the deputy chairman of the Conservative 1922 Backbench Committee. They're quite an influential bunch for those um, people listening who don't really know about them. They tend to have quite a lot of influence in who the, um, who the prime minister or who the leader of the Conservative Party is. And he spoke to Five Live recently about his regrets about this whole process. Look, we need a general election. We should never, ever have another referendum. To the day I die, I will curse myself for ever thinking that a referendum was a good idea. It was, I'm an idiot. I'm happy to admit to your listeners, I'm an idiot. 
Nice to have a little bit of honesty yeah, for a change. It yeah. is, it is. But that really went to the heart of it for me because I thought, well, surely they should have known. They are the lawmakers. They do this all the time. We trusted them to tell us how difficult this would be, and they didn't. They told us it was going to be easy. Is that a fair yeah, criticism? I, I, yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I mean, I, yeah, um, as, as, as I said earlier, I think that it's, it's, it's been a real lesson about why referendums are such a such a, um, a bad idea. The idea that you can reduce a sort of you know, tr- tremendously complex issue to... Uh, to this sort of binary decision is, um, is 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 an absurd one, yeah. So I think that's I think that's um, I think that's very important. But did they just not know, or or were they oversimplifying, or as George Osborne recently admitted, they just didn't think they would lose? I think it was. I think Osborne's being honest there. They didn't think they would lose, mm. but I also think there was a certain casual a way of approaching all kinds of policy during that administration. That there was a lack of interest in detail. Uh, what do you mean? In seeing things through. So they, they, they just didn't, they, they weren't interested in the detail, they just wanted to sell a I policy? I don't want to be too partisan, but I think David Cameron was very lazy, and I mean lazy, and didn't attend to the detail, didn't think things through, made very reactive decisions that were informed by what seemed like they would get, get them through that week's, that day's headlines rather than think through the longer term implications. I think that is a symptom of broader problems in the British political system. It's not just a symptom of the Cameron Osborne years, uh, but it was definitely, it seemed to be particularly marked in, in other kinds of policy areas as well. Because it feels like we've been let down, you know, because because we're in such a mess now. Yes, it, it does. And this this is part of the sort of illusion about about referendums, I think. Um, I was thinking one of my favourite um, qu- tweet quotes from the campaign was uh, Brian Cox saying, we can get people to, um, to vote to abandon gravity and to abolish gravity but what happens when they find that they're, they're not they're still they're not floating and um yeah i think that's this is part of the problem this is partly you know the source of the dissatisfaction and, and, and even anger that you're hearing from um from voters in great yarmouth that um they voted for something they expect something but you know what they expected might not have been deliverable it might not have been deliverable in the, in the time scale they anticipated um, and no one explained that to them but that is i think symptomatic maybe we'll come back to this later of the way in which uh, I don't want to get too sort of abstract, but I think that over the last couple of decades, what good politics is has been reconceived in in a way. And good politics has stopped being about policy, detail, implementation, the hard slog, and become about managing public opinion through managing media presentation on a day-to-day basis. And, and so the Blair government was quite good at Blair that. Blair government was very good. Yeah, it started in the 80s, went intensified in the 90s and carried on. So that what looked like so what political skill became getting a good headline, preventing a bad headline, keeping a kind of continual poll rating at a certain kind of level. And that's what a lot of the referendum was about. And that's now come to earth. Gravity's kicked in because it's hit the reality of policy and actual organisation of trade, government, parties and so forth. And I think that's part of the deeper level crisis that's going on. Well, here. I agree with Alan in, in, in a way. I think that there is an issue with, um, with, with show managing public opinion is a very nice way of putting it. I mean, there was a commitment, particularly in the early 90s, to evidence-based policymaking. And I think that has, um, that has evaporated and, and certainly seemed to, to have gone after um, 2010. I mean, one of the things I was really struck by was was um, you know, Theresa May when she was Home Secretary saying that, um, well, it didn't matter that there was no evidence that there was, um, there was no welfare tourism. What mattered was how people felt about controls on immigration. I think that's a really dangerous um, way of, of, of moving. I think that you know, facts and data and evidence are really very important when you're making policy. 
Okay, well, one of the other MPs who I thought would be useful to hear from is Chukra Muna. He's a, he was a Labour MP and he left Labour um, to form the independent group of MPs with some pro-European Conservatives. Um, and he spoke to Sky News recently, uh, criticising Labour for not getting behind a people's vote and also criticising Parliament as a whole. You have a Labour leadership which is refusing to come good on it, the spirit of its party conference motion, which is essentially, with this gridlock, to refer this matter back to the people. And in spite of the valiant efforts of many Labour MPs who've been arguing for a people's vote, a Eurosceptic leader of long-standing Euroscepticism is refusing to actually make a people's vote happen. And that's why, look, this place is broken. Our politics is fundamentally broken. It's an embarrassment to the country and Britain deserves better. Is he right? Is our politics fundamentally broken? That's quite an interesting comment to listen to again. If you listen to that, I would say what he says is absolutely symptomatic of what is broken rather than, a dis than an, analysis, an so? analysis of it. Because what he does is he makes an entirely internal party political positioning point. He took his response to, to, the, to the problems before the British Parliament, the British country, is to want to score a point off another, what is now another party, to blame it all on the other people in that party, to talk about that party not making decisions related to its own internal situation. He doesn't address the actuality of the national crisis or what has to be done about it. He's positioning himself for, for short-term Again, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm taking sides in this, but it seems to me quite revealing that that's, the, that that's what he says. And that reflects the way, the way he's been voting in the Commons as well. And we haven't had a split from a, a Labour or Conservative party for, what, 30 years mm -hmm. or so? Something like that. So that's quite a big deal in itself, isn't it? The, uh, the idea that these parties are now fracturing uh, across you know, pro or anti-European lines. Yeah, I, th I think that reflects the fact that uh, Brexit is a fracturing line between uh, across parties. Uh, and between parties. Uh, but on top of that, there is also a repolarization of politics uh, that is very obvious, and that makes it more difficult to find any uh, space in the middle, right? The, uh, the Labour Party doesn't want to vote for anything that would be coming from the Conservatives. On the other side, the uh, Conservative Party is very scared of uh, losing to uh, the Labour Party, uh, and, and both have like want to kind of distinguish itself from one another, which in some ways is also uh, something to be welcome. There is, again, uh, politics being played in Parliament rather than always compromising the centre ground, but that's intersect with Brexit in making finding a compromise extremely difficult. Right? And, and what happens next is the key, I suppose. So I'd like to go back to our voters in, in Great Yarmouth because we did ask them what they would like to have happen next. Should it be no deal or no Brexit or perhaps even an election? I don't think anyone's expecting it to be as much of a mess as it's ended up being. So I think if there is no deal Brexit, there definitely should be a second referendum for people to choose whether they still want to have a no deal Brexit or to just remain in the end. Yeah, but if they have another referendum, we've already had one and everybody voted to leave. Yeah, so if they have another one, I bet a lot of people will say we'll stay. That, yeah, that vote should be final. It's going to be interesting with the European elections, though. And when we get closer to the European elections, we need to either leave or have European elections again. I think if you had another vote, it'd swing the other way. An election, I'd have no faith in, no. in whoever was uh, in power to, to resolve it at the moment. So for me, I think no deal. And so the public, as with the politicians, no conclusive answer on what to do next. I think what they're saying is indicative of the scale and depth of the crisis and the ways in which what's happening now around Brexit is a cause of 
bearish crises, but was itself also a symptom of deeper crises. We've talked a little bit about the constitutional dimension of that crisis, how referendums don't quite fit with the British system. We haven't talked about other things that have had similar effects, fixed-term Parliament Act evolution, have all messed up the British constitution and put contradictions into it. But beneath that are deeper level contradictions, things that cut against the parties, as Pierre was saying. Divisions over Europe have always uh, been present in both Labour and Conservative. There's a kind of an English, and I mean English nationalism, that cuts against, or you can find across the ideologies in different ways. But a repolarization of ideological thinking is a symptomatic of inequality in the financial crisis, but also, I think, a much, a much deeper way in which the England, the UK, became internally divided economically and culturally, that we have had, to be very kind of crude and generalising, for a long time we've had a political economy that basically works by generating an awful lot of income in one part of the country geographically that then gets redistributed to other parts of the country that then feel like they are, to use a word at the moment, made mere vassals to the Westminster state, Yarmouth is one of those places, and that's generated an awful lot of completely understandable resentments. I think that, I think that Alan's absolutely right about this. I, I would add something else as well, which I, I, I think that it's not only, um, I agree with his, his, the way he sort of conceptualises the political economy of the UK, but I also think that um, there's a real issue about governance as well. Um, you know, that... Um, that somehow the idea that having elected local elected assemblies, local um, you know, genuine local or regional government, um, has been successfully characterised by its opponents as expensive, bureaucratic, etc. But actually, I think there are many parts of the country um, where um, I'm thinking about the northeast, but, but many other places also where um, responsible regional assemblies, responsible regional government would actually have um, you know give people uh, would, would um, sort of express identity but also you know, provide an arena where certain you know local regional issues could be dealt with expressed managed in a way that they um, they aren't because we're so hyper centralized in the UK so so in that sense I mean that's not a solution right but <laughs> but the solution is that we ought to be thinking about how we rebuild recreate political social, economic institutions in different ways across the country regionally that people can feel, give them some kind of voice and some kind of stake. And they can also begin to then address the specific nature of certain kinds of economic or social problem in regions rather than try and impose one simple model. We've basically had a kind of one club economic policy for a long time, which is marketise it, privatise it, cut it, don't spend money on it. And that doesn't work in all different regions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely that. And we've sort of, you know, toyed with the idea of mayors and had, have mayors in some places and, 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 and not in others. But, I mean, you know, my question would be, who speaks for the, the North East? Who speaks for Cornwall and Devon? Sure, the MPs do, but, that, but you know, um, in other places, in other countries, there would be, you know, elected regional, um, you know, politicians' authorities who, who would represent interest to Westminster nationally, um, but also... Um, um, you know, provide a place for um, you know discussion of issues that really are um, really are important. So, yeah, I mean, Alan, Alan sort of characterised these things as, as cause and symptoms, and I would say that um, it's not a solution in itself, but it's part of a solution. So, one of the other things that came up in those interviews was the European elections, and there's a lot going on this year. So, if we do end up with further delay, 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 and we don't leave on the 12th of April, wh- where does that leave us? Well, we'll, we'll be obliged to have European elections, won't we? 
if we haven't agreed anything before. It depends on the length of the extension. Yeah. If it's a short extension before the parliament starts sitting in, in July, mm -hmm. uh, it's With possible to have a short extension, but it's called a technical extension because yeah. nothing big can happen in the meantime. You can't have a referendum uh, because you need to organize it. It takes time and so on and so forth. Having a general election, that's also short because what, let's say, the Labour Party comes into government, they will need some time to uh, discuss a little bit with Brussels mm -hmm. to know what's going on. So the short technical ex extension uh, cannot doesn't allow allow very much except passing the withdrawal agreements, or yeah, or not, or, or trying to get a, get a bit more time to uh, manage an ordeal. Uh, but except for that, it, it doesn't solve problems. So then it's a longer extension. But a longer extension means, yeah, either you you elect MEPs, but for how long do you, are you electing them? Probably uh, not for a full term. What and does do you not mean? think that if we had European elections, it would be pretty hellish, wouldn't it? Absolutely. In terms of the, you know aggressiveness and yeah. hostility and ugliness of the campaign and how that would just intensify the sectarian, and I use that word deliberately, divisions in the country. It'd be pretty brutal, wouldn't it? I mean, that's not honestly an argument against having elections. <laughs> you have to have elections sometimes. But turnout is extremely low and the people who turn out there would be like the most it, fired up. Then so it would be a question, sides, well, is, so it, is it really a referendum on Brexit? But if it is, what is it really a referendum on? Are we still for or against it? Or is it a referendum on the deal and all the rest of it? It would be pretty... Presumably, though, if ghastly. we had a general election, it would be like having another referendum. A general election would be that intense, yes, yeah, three, four times over, I think, yeah. Can we... Is it fair to put you on the spot? I mean, do you think the most likely is effectively support for Theresa May's withdrawal agreement as it stands, or general election, or no deal? Or another. What do you think? It's, it's so it's it's so so hard to predict. It is. Okay, you would you would say that, wouldn't wouldn't <laughs> you? I, I hear you saying. But I mean, one of one of the, the profoundly um, difficult um, issues here, or what's been impenetrable from the start, is to to see what the sort of first, second, well, the second, third, fourth, fifth preferences of MPs are, and how um, how try, how how party loyalty is going to sort of play out. That's always been the really difficult thing. And who'd have guessed that um, you know that significant DUP members would have come out as as remainers? Yeah. Over the last um, over the last week or so, after a few so days, we prefer Brexit yeah. to uh, or no no Brexit to yeah absolutely. This, I mean, this is this is this is really astounding, and it's again changed the dynamic in in Westminster. I think we also have to look over the other side of the of the water and think about how the EU twenty seven, how the remaining members of the EU are thinking about this. Um, you know, they're they're on the sort of horns of a dilemma. They want this to be resolved. They want there to be sort of clarity, they an orderly um, process. And so, you know, anything that happens before. Um, the um, the elections, um, the European parliamentary elections, would be would be great, um, but I don't think you know realistically they imagine that's going to happen. Um, but think about what it means for them. What, what it means for them to extend, um, you know, to un undertake a long extension. You've got the danger of um, the UK being um, you know sort of you know sabotaging or um, or sort of you know biasing decision making when when they're effectively withdrawing state. Um, you know you have um, you. Know, we don't really know what what the composition of the, the UK contingent in the in the European Parliament would be, um, but on the other hand, you might think, well, if, if there's a long term extension, then actually, you know, certain options might have been exhausted. There might be a degree of learning on the UK side, and a solution might be arrived at. What what could it mean, Pierre, for the rest of Europe? I mean, could other European countries start looking at the EU in a, in a different way, in a in a more critical way? I think it's the opposite that is happening right now. When Brexit happened, you had a couple of uh, parties across the continent who were saying, oh, great, Brexit, we're going to do the same. 
like Front National in France uh, talking about like Frexit and usually it's not full Frexit from the European Union but Frexit from the Euro uh, and then you could find the similar things with uh, in Italy with the Lega and so on and so forth just after the referendum like suddenly we're going to reclaim our sovereignty that worked well then now I think a lot of these parties have really toned down this. You don't hear the Front National saying, talking about Frexit, neither from the Eurozone nor from for EU membership. Italy as well. Uh, you find I think you find that across Europe, uh, a lot of Eurosceptic, often far-right parties have really uh, have become more cautious because they are looking at the UK, seeing how complicated uh, exit is and how that would play out with with their, their, their voters. Uh, so are they, they are a lot more uh, sceptical and you don't hear that much exits across Europe. That said, of course, in the longer run, what happens with the UK withdrawal uh, will uh, be important because other countries, uh, other parties across Europe who may be sceptical will look at how things are playing out in the medium to long term and they might reconsider the position. But in the short term, if anything, it has reinforced uh, I guess, uh, the the support for membership. And you can see also the general support for membership across EU countries that is measured in, in, in polls conducted across EU countries shows uh, a bump in support uh, for for EU membership at the moment. The same. Yes, I, mean, I absolutely, absolutely agree with everything that um, Pierre said. And I think it's really important to think our way our back to where we were in 2015, 2016, um, when it really did look like there were a series of dominoes that would fall and the UK was was at the front of them. Um, but actually, there, there have been a number of significant changes. And I still think there are there are issues in, in, in Hungary and in Italy. But um, as, as Pierre says, um, public opinion has, has, um, has shifted in, in support of, um, of EU membership and the Eurosceptic parties who were claiming they wanted to, to, to campaign for leave have now um, changed their platforms. Okay, Alan, we're almost out of time, but I just want to think about what what does all this mean for our politics? I mean, we've been talking about all the problems. Are there any positives in there about, you know, I don't know, people being more engaged? I was waiting for the jokes to come out. Oh, okay. Um, No, I don't think... I I find it hard to see positives, to be honest. I think think the... uh, the level of trust in politicians from all sides of the political spectrum is has been is very low. The hostility and the mutual hostility between groups is very high, and I don't really see many ways in which that's going to be brought back together. So even if we resolve things magically tomorrow, there's still going to be an awful lot of tension or all kinds of division. Um, I'll stick my neck out and say I think that it's going to be either Theresa May's withdrawal agreement or it's going to be no deal. I don't think any other options are going to happen. And I think that no deal is now slightly more likely just because I think it's been priced in, as they say, by the various parties. And I think that because the parties, as we said earlier, are really making decisions based on what they think is in their short term tactical advantage. Actually, weirdly, it's in the tactical interest of a number of the different players for no deal to occur that they then blame on someone else to try and reap the benefit from it because they haven't priced in exactly the scale of civil um, disruption it would entail. So I think we are, yeah, we're going to be back here talking about this again. Bumpy road ahead. Oh dear. Well, that's all for now. Thank you so much for listening. Our reporters today were Semfei Bingxin, Haitian and Shu Lin. Thanks to our guests, of course, Hussein and Pierre, and to BBC Sky and ITV for the news clips. Please do subscribe to us. We are now also on Spotify, as well as iTunes and Overcast, and we will have more podcasts for you soon. And in the meantime, do check out our website, uapolitics.org. 